0: This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello everyone. I'm your host Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. This is episode 169, and today I sat down with Francisco Pergola, the co-founder of Chetty's Crackers. Chetty's cheese crackers are high in protein, low in sugar, and made from real cheese sourced from regenerative farms. In this episode, Francisco shares his story from growing up in San Antonio, Texas with dreams to work on Wall Street, to starting the first ping pong club in high school, to earning his master's degree in architecture, to creating Cheddies after realizing that hospital patients didn't have any healthy snack options. We talk about how he showed up to HEB headquarters unannounced and initially got rejected, but managed to get on shelves within just two years, and how the COVID cheese disaster led to a pivot toward regenerative farming. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and you can check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello Francisco. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story in building Cheddies. How are you today?
1: Hey, how's it going? I'm equally as excited to share more. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. So, let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? What was childhood like?
1: So, both Moss and I, who is my other co-founder and brother, we are both from San Antonio, Texas. And for those of you that don't know, it's about an hour south of Austin.
0: I do know where San Antonio is. I have an uncle, an aunt, and two cousins that live there, and I've never been there. <laughs> I need a visit.
1: That sounds about right. I know. I've, I'm always trying to get more people to come down and visit, but Austin's been kind of the hot topic these days.
0: That's true. That's kind of the hot spot. So what was it like growing up in San Antonio as a kid? What were you into? What was your relationship like with your brother, your parents, what they do? Paint the picture for us.
1: Yeah. San Antonio, it has grown quite a bit. I think since I was a kid, it's grown in population by like one and a half million. So pretty explosive growth. I mean, all in all. And my parents were from Argentina. So we spent a fair amount of time as kids kind of going to and from Argentina during the summer and the winter. And so it was pretty unique. We got to see a different part of the world growing up and different part of the, you know, different culture but growing up, I think, you know, Tomas and I were always very entrepreneurial. And we would find little things to do, like cut grass and sell lemonade and, you know, anything to make a few, few dollars.
0: Where do you think that comes from? Were your parents entrepreneurial or
1: my parents? So I think they moved from Argentina to pursue their medical career here in the States. And I think you could consider that entrepreneurial, you know, taking it's a risk to some degree. And my grandmother, she was entrepreneurial. She had started and and ran kind of the largest distribution for Tupperware. Nice here in when Buenos Aires. She's she's always been very entrepreneurial. So I think that's kind of we've always been surrounded by it.
0: That's interesting. So what other things were you into, and what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Man, I don't know where I got this idea from, but for some reason, as a kid, I always wanted to work in Wall Street and that really just couldn't be like the farthest thing from a good fit for me.
0: <laughs> was it just the money that you were attracted to? Or what was it about Wall Street? Like, when was the moment where you're like, and when did you even know what Wall Street was? I grew up in Delaware, like two hours from New York. And I still as a kid didn't know what Wall Street was.
1: I've got no freaking clue. I think there was just something kind of sexy about the idea of like, wearing a suit and trading stock and the hustle and bustle of New York. I know I must've seen it in some like movie or something. And I I was like, that's what I want to be. I want to work in Wall Street. So I thought, yeah, it's just like, I don't know. And I stuck to that for a long time, actually.
0: Interesting. So did you end up wanting to pursue finance in college or what happened to the dream?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I just high school came around and I was okay at math and Actually, funny enough, in high school, we used to have like ping pong tables. Like we used to play middle school, high school. All the time, we'd have little tournaments with like all the guys. And the school went under construction and they actually like got rid of the ping pong tables. And so everyone was like pretty bummed about that. So we had these extracurricular activities, like a club you had to participate in. So I started a ping pong club my senior year and actually it was the fastest growing club I guess, like in the history of the school, we had by the end of the year, like 90 members. And we had actually outperformed the finance club in terms of like revenue we were able to generate. We actually did that by selling donuts and coffee every other week. And we made a lot of money doing that. So by like the end of the year, we would like host these big, massive tournaments with like free food and music. And like there was a prize. So Yeah, it was like something that kind of started leading me down more like an entrepreneurial path, I think, more than like the finance Wall Street thing.
0: Well, especially if you were like beating the finance club, you're like, well, my ping pong club is way cooler than the finance club.
1: Yeah, no, it was super. It was I mean, you know, we didn't shove it in their face, but it was it was a known little thing. The ping pong club guys were pretty happy and gals, you know, good mix.
0: Is it still there at the school? Do they still have the club?
1: I really couldn't tell you. I think, unfortunately not. No one kind of took the charge after I I left. So we donated like a large check to the, what was it? Red Cross, like $5,000 to the Red Cross, and then left like a 1000 for the club to use if someone decided to step up to the plate and, and lead it. But I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure. It's been now. Nah, I don't want to date myself.
0: <laughs> so... Beyond starting your own club at high school, what were some of your first jobs or internships?
1: I worked at a Belgium restaurant as a busser for a year. That was kind of fun. It was like an upscale restaurant. So like I was always talking to people. You know, I was young and just open to conversations with people. And so I think that like trained me to be open to talking to, to new people and starting new conversations and networking and then so i actually studied architecture got my masters during that time i did a year working for an architecture firm in san antonio called overland partners and that was fun very different from a busser
0: yeah sounds like a real job or a path to one right not that working at restaurants aren't real jobs but you've got your masters
1: exhausting
0: yeah they are exhausting jobs they're like really hard jobs
1: yeah you're on your feet all the time and Socializing all the time, which is tiring, but yeah, a little different.
0: A little different. So, you were at Overland Partners. You got your master's in architecture. So, you're on a path to be an architect, basically.
1: I was. Yeah, for sure, which was fun.
0: Was. So, what happened?
1: So, nothing really happened. I just decided that I was a little burned out. I think it was, it was, it was a five year master's and it it was an accelerated program. Um, It was like twenty to twenty-two credit hours a semester for pretty much five years straight. And I was just kind of burned out. Just felt like I wanted to take a stab at something totally different. And, you know, if that didn't work out, I had my degree and knew that I could go and get a job. And so, you know, I guess maybe that's a good segue into how Chetty's was formed. But just thought like, you know, let's let's go for it. Let's shoot for the stars and see if if it works out. And if it doesn't, then and all good.
0: What stars were you shooting for?
1: We were shooting for the hail mary, just becoming a competitor to Cheez-Its or some kind of big brand.
0: Well, where did that idea come from? Why Cheez-Its?
1: Well, I guess I'll, I'll just kind of dive right in. So, let's see. I was actually so finishing my master's, and at the time, so both my parents were doctors, so we'd grow up every night having dinner together and having always just very entrepreneurial conversations and conversations about hospitals and medical stuff. And one day the conversation came up about how, how poor the food industry is in terms of like providing their patients with protein snacks or like savory protein stuff. This was 2015. I think the only protein savory stuff on the market at the time was quest chips and simply protein. This was kind of during the era of like the protein bar boom I mean, you had everything from like Clif Bar to, I mean, there's like already dozens of, of protein bar options. Now there's thousands. But so really they were saying how there's how their patients have access to protein bars and protein shakes, but that's just not really anything that their patients ever want to consume. And so they revert back to kind of like the beloved snacks they grew up on, the Cheez Hits, the Cheetos, the Doritos. And so this kind of came up because... I was doing my master's thesis at the time, which was basically looking at redesigning the hospital waiting room experience all the way from entering the hospital all the way to receiving treatment. It's kind of like a complex system, like the transportation and then just the the flow of that whole process. So I actually started doing research that summer and I just, for three months, I went to 70 clinics all around San Antonio and the first month and a half was just, sitting and observing kind of how people interacted and how that whole process worked and while i was just sitting in these clinics i thought it was just i was enamored by this kind of bizarre dynamic between the dietitian and the and the patients and the doctors you know the dietitians would tell the patients like don't eat cheetos don't drink coke stay away from bananas or just whatever right and then they would go back into the clinic and the patients would literally, the minute they turned their back, would go over to the vending machine,
0: beep, boop, boop,
1: get a bag of like Cheez-Its or Doritos or something. It was like, and every single time, it was the same thing. Or like someone would walk into the waiting room with like a cake, cause it was someone's birthday and like share it amongst everybody. And I'm like, this is kind of bizarre. It's kind of like witnessing them selling cigarettes at a, like a tobacco rehabilitation center or something to that degree. So I was like, why aren't there like healthier vending machine options in the hospitals? And that's kind of where this conversation started was like, is there a segue into stocking vending machines in hospitals with like healthier options? So I started looking into that out of curiosity and kind of came to realize there just wasn't any good options to stock vending machines with, at least savory ones. Like I mentioned, there was the quest chips and the Simply Protein, and they're just not tasty. I I think they've improved since then. Fast forward that a little bit. Vending machine idea didn't really quite work. And so I said, and this is kind of where I'm not entirely sure where I decided I wanted to start doing this, but I was like, during my research, what if I took in a bag of like handmade protein rich cheese crackers and just sample them out? Like I wanted to just see what the reception of the patients would be. So I formed like a little Dietitian program with the dietitians at all these clinics that I was going to, the 70 clinics, and really try to understand what their patients were needing in terms of like protein and calcium and albumin and all these phosphorus, potassium. And I made this cheese cracker on steroids in my kitchen. It had like 20 ingredients, it was like 30 grams of protein per serving. I mean, it was just like crazy. And started like hand rolling them in my kitchen, baking them, sealing them into little baggies. And then I started going around to clinics and selling them to the dietitians. The dietitians have a healthcare program with like a budget, call it 150 to half a million dollars annually to provide their patients with like snacks and protein drinks, et cetera. And the dietitians kind of have free reign to decide like how they choose to spend their budget. So I had formed like a really good relationship with them because I'd go in and I'd talk with their patients and just kind of like listen to what they needed, which is something that in the medical industry, like not many people do. No one ever goes into a hospital and it's just like, how can I help? Your patients need snacks. I got the best cheese crackers. So that summer, my brother Tomas got involved and for fun, we were just like, let's see how much money we could make going into like every single one of these clinics and just like selling them snacks. And if that works, then there's like a national program. And so the business idea originally was, let's sell these protein-rich cheese crackers nationwide in all these clinics, and then just basically get locked into their their program. So their nutrition program. That was the original business idea. So we started going down that path and we were making like $3,500 a month or so. It was actually working. You know, people were, patients would, love the cheese crackers. The dietitians would write us a check. We'd go in, we'd just drop off crackers and then be on our way to the next clinic. And then one day we got a phone call from corporate that basically they just shut us down. They were like, we can't have, I guess they call it wind.
0: They're like, where's the commercial kitchen? Do you have one? No. Okay. You're out.
1: It was literally in our kitchen. I mean, now that I know, definitely not professional but we had like a little sticker and we had a we had a whole thing down
0: you tried to be legit yeah
1: we tried to be legit we were legit
0: yeah what was the name did you would you call it chetty still or what was the name
1: oh my god we were trying to be clever since it's like healthcare and health related we were called well nutrition it's like embarrassing to, to even like share that because it was not even spelled well correctly it was w-u-e-l we we're trying to be like edgy on well And so no one could ever pronounce it, but it didn't really matter since like we'd go into clinics and people were like the wool crackers, yeah, like
0: the wool crackers.
1: That's what they would say.
0: (laughs) That is hilarious. So how long did this go on? Like just a couple months over the summer?
1: Yeah, just like basically a couple months. Then we get shut down, and then but at the time like we had seventy clinics that were like buying from us, like at least probably like every week or like every other week, give or take. We had done it for I think. Two months, we we were we were definitely gaining attention, and then all the dietitians they would just call me on my cell phone because that's like how the relationship with them was, and they're like, "Hey, like, where are you guys? My patients want your snacks." Actually, in a really cool thing that had happened to us was, so the the dietitians track something called their albumin levels, which is basically it's like correlated to their protein intake. And I had we had even a few dietitians like reach out and were like, oh my god, you know this patient I saw like a little like spike in their albumin, like that's amazing, like it's it's really difficult to do. So people were really getting excited about it, and you know I told them we got shut down and this and that, and so they're like, oh, where where can my patients buy your crackers? And that's really kind of how this started. Was we said, oh, let's just go to Heb, who's you know the largest supermarket here in Texas. Let's just go and like get our crackers into HEB. And I mean, come to figure out it's not that easy, but we had just like a totally, we knew nothing about the industry. We had a horrible name. Our product was not right. We hadn't scaled the product yet. We had no idea how to scale it. So that's really like where this whole journey began.
0: That's awesome, I mean, and what a great way to do a product test, just test a you were testing the concept essentially, just the concept, yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. And so now that you realized, oh wait h e b it's going to be a little tougher than we thought to maybe try to just get on retail shelves. What did you guys decide from there?
1: Well, just and really quickly, since you touched base on something that I think we had talked about for a while with Tomas was like when we go into the clinics. What was like the easiest selling point for us since we were testing the concept was familiarity and approachability. Since, like, not to be too morbid, but a lot of these patients, their life expectancy isn't tremendous. It's a few years, like, since, you know, if you go on dialysis and you have kidney failure, it's a lot to ask for someone to change their dietary habits when they know that they have a few years to enjoy eating the things they love to eat. And so, For us, one thing that was really important was, like, telling these patients, like, you're not making a sacrifice here. Like, this isn't a healthy snack. We weren't pitching it like that. It was, this is, like, a familiar snack that is familiar, like, this is approachable, and there's some nostalgia with, like, cheese and salty and snacking. It just happens to be better for you. So we kind of reversed it. It was, like, we weren't pitching it. It's, like, it's a better-for-you thing with, like, protein and this and less that and this, this, and it's really tasty. This is like the tastiest cheese cracker, it's familiar, it's crunchy, it's delicious, and it happens to be better for you, which like at the time, 2015, like health was kind of portrayed as like white packaging, clean, very like clean font. And we we're kind of trying to go more in like the color direction and like, so anyway, you you touched on something that I thought was near and dear to our hearts when we started, Chinese was it's a snack. This thing's meant to be fun. It just so happens to be better for you. And we've stuck with that philosophy.
0: Yeah, to not sacrifice on what you're saying, like the taste and enjoyment of having something similar that they're used to having. And so how did you, I mean, what were the next steps that you took? You got shut down. You want, you're want you like, all right, we've got to find a way to be able to be sold in a way that these customers can find us. What were your next steps?
1: So next steps, we were still thinking we are going to be like in the health aisle next to like where the slim fast is and all that or like where quest chips are at target and so we thought we were going into that category and so we what we did was we had no idea of like the formalities behind approaching a buyer for a grocery store and so the headquarters for hub is in san antonio and so we were like let's just go like let's just go and just see if we can meet the buyer so we went we told the security guard we had a meeting and this and that we got a badge we went on there was like another gate we needed to get through and we just like pretended we had lost our key cards, so someone opened our the gate for us I mean we were like 22 at the time and so you know we're just like these innocent kids and so people just kind of would open doors for us
0: oh I know that game oh I played that game a lot so I love that
1: you got to use it. I always tell people all the time, like, just ask for forgiveness later. And then we waited in the waiting room. And until she like walked by and we're like, Oh, hey, so and so we had done some research, like we knew what her name was. And she was like, Oh, we're, you know, we're well and we, these are our crackers. And we, we have a, a huge following here in San Antonio. And like, we love to sell in your stores. And she was just like, Who are you? This is totally unprofessional. Like, you can't just do this. No, just like, no, you leave your stuff here and I'll like maybe consider it. And she like sent us off. She was like pissed off. And so we we're like, oh, that didn't work. And so then maybe three weeks later, she she like called and she was like, hey, you know, I'm sorry about how I how I handle that situation. I realize you guys just like don't know what you're doing, but I did try the product. I, I had my team try it and it sucks. She like literally told us it's, it's trash and that she couldn't sell it in her stores. The branding was off. Can you even like, where are you manufacturing this X, Y, Z? And we're like, dang, like, yeah, she destroyed us.
0: Did you tell her you were making it in your kitchen?
1: God, no, (laughs) no, absolutely not. And so we, we've always been very professional and buttoned up. We don't lie. We just try to stretch the truth. (laughs) And so she was like, you know what? Here's like all our feedback. Use it as you please. And so we we actually did. We used it as like a checklist. We were like, Brandon, okay, we need to do this. Check. Scaling, we need to like be able to fulfill a pallet. Check. So we, we spent the next year, we had graduated and we were like, we were feeling inspired enough to take this thing head on, moved in with the parents, the whole thing. They wrote us a small initial check to basically subsidize like any travel expense or anything related to getting the product to market. It was not a lot. No salary, no nothing like that. Just live with the parents. And basically got the product to a point where we were able to present it to her again. We had gone through an accelerator program. They wrote us a small check that helped us out and presented the item to her again. She's like, I don't know. Let me think about it, I right, whatever. And right as that happened, Heidi, the Midwest grocery store chain, calls me. We had submitted our items through me. Uh, Like that was an investment we had made was, was using that platform. It's basically an online submission portal for your items to different grocery stores as an online thing. He called the the hy buyer calls me one day and he's like, Hey, I need your items in my store. And I was like, excuse me. He's like my boss's wife or my boss took the samples you guys sent to our offices home. And my boss's wife found the cheddies in His pantry in their pantry, ate them, loved them, went to Hive to buy more. There aren't any in our stores. So she got mad at her husband, who was the buyer's boss. I know it's a whole tongue twister, but and so he's like, My boss wants him, his wife wants him in the store. And I was like, I need to meet this woman, thank you. (laughs)
0: Like, who is this woman, this goddess? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes, literally, you're our savior, and so. That was like our big, that was our big break. We were really needing that break since we had like put in all the work to make the branding and the packaging. And basically we had run these like small little pilot runs that would let us know if we were going to be able to run the product at full scale. Cause like full scale runs are very costly for crackers. There's not really like a middle ground. It's either like very artisanal like handmade stuff or like full blown out like football length field ovens like there's just really no in the middle there's no one that can really tailor to a startup so he was like yeah we need a truckload and we want exclusivity on like white cheddar and so i remember that summer we put on as a family, it was like 20,000 stickers on bags. We like, it was just boom, boom, boom. We had made like a sticker that said white cheddar exclusive at Heidi. Yeah. So we, we did all that, got our first PO. And then like weeks later, h u b called us and she was like, we reviewed a product again. This is two years later since when we met her, she was like, we have an opportunity for you guys and just fill this out. We we're like, does this mean we're in like. There's never any clarity on any of this. There's no contracts, there's no nothing. So yeah, we fill out the paperwork, and six months later we're in H E B. So that's yeah, I'll stop there because
0: that's wild. That's awesome. Well, I love the story of how you walked into the corporate office of HEB because I definitely I have my own story of doing that. And it's I pretended I had a meeting. Yeah, I was really wanting to model. And so I Had a list of all these top agencies and I cold called them and they didn't answer or they'd hang up or say, you know, email us at info at we don't give a shit dot com. You know, they just don't care. Line up. We'll say no to all of you thing. So I went to New York for the day and I went to visit top 10, like the top 10 agencies in the city. I couldn't get a meeting with any of them. So I started to call and I'd say, hey, I've got a meeting with this one, this one, but I can swing by around two o'clock. And they're like, okay, you can swing by. And so that's how I like get my first few meetings.
1: That's amazing.
0: And so I went to New York and saw all of these agencies. They all said no. And at the end of the day, the only agency that didn't respond was Elite. So I just went up to their office (laughs) and I went to the receptionist just like you did. And I was like, I have a meeting with Karen Lee. And I'd been reading about this woman online. So I knew her name.
1: Did your research? Yeah,
0: I did my research. And she was like, oh, I don't have you on the calendar. Maybe we made a mistake. I'll be right back so i'm like pacing in the lobby like oh my god what's going to happen just sweating, i don't know sweating yeah. yeah sweating bullets like i need yeah, to either I'm leave be arrested, and
1: yeah that's
0: what I thought. I thought they were going to call the cops on me. And it's like total paranoia takes over like half of your brain. And then the other half is like, what happens? What could happen?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You look up, there's a camera staring right at you. And you're like, oh, they're looking at me.
0: Like, put your head down, keep your head down. Don't show your face. No. So then the door swung open and there's this woman with long, dark hair. And she's like, hi, my name is Karen. I'm so sorry. I forgot about our meeting. Come on back. And I was like, oh, my God, she thinks she has a meeting with me.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. So I sit down with this woman. And of course, same thing with you. Like, uh, so how can I help you? And I was like, so listen, Karen, I've had a ton of meetings today. I saw all these agencies. It's going to be such a tough decision to make. But I really want to be with Elite. And this is why. I told her all this stuff I knew about her and how I was ready to drop out of college to do this. And I was looking for someone to believe in me, too. Let's go and she i think just liked my fire and energy and introduced me to one of their you know head of the new faces department and he actually who incidentally had such a fire in his belly to be an agent he moved from hawaii to new york just with nothing in his pocket to with a dream of becoming an agent at a modeling agency and here he is looking at me with this wild dream to pursue modeling and he was like, "All right, let's go." <laughs> so I ended up signing a three-year exclusive contract and dropped out of college. But, <laughs> I but that happened. I did that a lot. Like I snuck into m- Jacob shows backstage with security guards, being like. My friends are back there. I was so supposed to be in there and I couldn't get in through the front. So you got to let me in. And I got like the badge and I went through and I'm like in the back with all JLo's back there. And like all the models are back there. And I'm like, what am I doing here?
1: Did you get to meet them while you were like, or did you go up and?
0: I had to pretend I had friends there because the security guard is watching me like a hawk. And so I like go up to these people and like, it's so good to see. Like I gave them a hug and they're like, wait, how do I know this person? I'm like, you don't know me.
1: You are kidding me. I really hope there's like a picture or something out there in the wild of this or one of these moments.
0: So hilarious. But yeah, so I totally hear you mean, when you're in your early 20s and you know you look innocent. If you can use it, just go for it. Why not? You have nothing else to lose, right? Nothing to lose.
1: I mean, that's the thing. Is like what? You have no reputation. You know, you're not going to get arrested or anything. You'll just be asked to leave the premise. Worst comes to worst.
0: Right. Or with modeling, I would just be asked to leave and I just go back to school, (laughs) finish my degree, right?
1: I think it's just like, I mean, Yeah, why not?
0: And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoseo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. I always was so curious about what if works. What if it happens? And that curiosity just always overrided the fear of being rejected. I didn't care about being rejected. I cared about what if it worked? What if it happened? I mean it was the same kind of thing with starting my tech company. And I think it's a very entrepreneurial thing where if you have this in your belly, uh, this fire and this the desire of doing something and winning feels greater than the fear of what if it doesn't work? Or what if I get rejected?
1: Just being passive about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You just do it.
1: I also have a hard time with no.
0: Of course. It hurts.
1: Just in general. I mean, I mean yeah, right. Who doesn't? But it's like a definitely it's a driving force for me. No, I can't do that. Okay, fine. Like I'm going to set out to not necessarily prove you wrong, but prove to myself that I am capable of it. I think that's like a big driver for sure.
0: I mean, if I I had gotten rejected that entire day by every agency, like I just knew all of them said, would say no. And and some of them did to my face. And so I had nothing to lose. It keeps coming back to like, I I still have nothing to lose because I haven't gotten my yes yet. There's something there, I think, with people that build something from nothing that they're just so they won't take no for an answer because the yes will feel so amazing. Right. And it's like you'll do anything to get to that. Yes.
1: Exactly. I remember very distinctly, like, I had this one phone call. This was back when we were looking for a co manufacturer. I had a list of like a hundred different co manufacturers, and I would call them all and I'd tell them like what we were wanting to do. And we didn't have a PO or anything at the time. I was like, look, we need a partner. We need someone that will believe in us and this and that. And I remember this one phone call I had with this one gentleman. He just straight out told me, like, and I wrote it down somewhere. I never found it again, but he was like, this is fucking crazy. What you guys are wanting to do with this much cheese in your product or whatever, like it's just dumb. Let me just stop. Let me just save you the misery right now. It'll never work. And I was like, very respectfully, you know, thanked them first time and everything. I was like, this is gonna work. Now I'm, I'm enraged. <laughs> like I didn't take it lightly.
0: You have to like believe something in you believes that it can work. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep going, right? For some reason, I thought I could do it. For some reason, you thought you could create these awesome crackers. And so that thing inside you, that vision, maybe, maybe it was like partly vision of, I can see what this looks like on the other end. And so all it takes is for me to just keep going and getting through these obstacles so that I can meet that vision.
1: Absolutely. And also, I don't really like telling people like that their ideas won't work or that they're dumb or whatever. I think that thought process needs to come from yourself. Like something is not working and I need to change it. But I think that comes from yourself through persistence. Okay. This is not working. I need to change something here. So yeah, it's been a fun journey for sure. Just to get Chetty's to where it's at today.
0: So you ended up getting on the shelves finally of HEB. I'm sure that felt great.
1: Oh, it was wild, yeah, Just seeing our product.
0: you remember that moment? You know, I'm just thinking back just on myself, and i'm I'm sure you maybe had your moment too. But I remember when I was driving home with an elite portfolio in my car, and I'm like, "Holy shit, I did it. Like I have a portfolio with this top agency's logo on it, and I have photographs inside, like this is. Totally, what I dreamed, and I'm driving home to Delaware to visit my family, and like that is my that's my portfolio.
1: I was gonna ask, where did you go right after? That? Did you go home? Did you celebrate with family? Like the feeling was just amazing.
0: Well, yeah, it was insane. Yeah, it's just insane because you're like, I can't believe that actually just happened because you kind of don't prepare for it, but you are. It's like a very weird thing. I'm sure with your your moment seeing your crackers on shelves, like was that a moment for you where you're like, whoa, this is real.
1: Absolutely. And I can't even remember where it was. For, I think it was actually at a gas station, like, believe it or not. Because so what had happened was, Hive took us in first. And so we did all those crazy things to make. Well, and actually, just to backtrack, when we told the Hyvie buyer, yes, we were ready, we can send them a truckload, we were not ready. We could not send them a truckload. We were frantic about how we were actually going to fulfill that order. We had spent like, because he was like, and we needed them three months. And we were like, three months? we're still trying to figure it out. We still don't have a co you know, we had some leads, but there was like trials and testing and all these things that still needed to occur. So basically we accelerated that process because now we had a PO in hand and we'd go to all the co and we'd like hype ourselves up about how we were going to be hitting however much revenue they were wanting for us to do with them, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, that was fun, like three months of like doing whatever it took to produce a truckload and then so he was like and we have this other great opportunity uh, it's in Des Moines Iowa can you bring up a pallet of product it's with all our buyers and the uh, C-store is going to be there so like convenience store and i think i can get you guys in order with gas stations it was about 300 gas stations so we actually drove from San Antonio to Des Moines it was like 18 hours or something we like loaded my brother's truck with a pallet of crackers and drove up overnight cuz he like told us within a week. And I remember we like, we did it, we just pulled an all-nighter and then we pulled over on the side of the road and we didn't know where we were at. We were like falling asleep. And we woke up in the morning, basically in like a dairy farm. There was just like cows all around us. And it was just kind of a moment I remember. It was very surreal. And then we, yeah, finished up our trip. It was two hours away and exhibited there at like this annual meeting that they host for all their high buyers. Met the convenience store buyer, and we landed another 300 stores with their gas stations. So, for the first time, the first time we saw Chetty's was actually at a gas station hanging on a clip strip next to, I think it was like Cheez Its or something. It was kind of, it was, it was insane. We didn't even know what what was going on. It was, we couldn't believe we had gotten it into a gas station. So, I remember those pictures were fun.
0: How cool is that? It's so rewarding. And I think it's so important, especially for like high schoolers, college kids to be taking so much risk and trying to do things and create things. It's just such a confidence builder because we're talking about these kind of stories in business in the early 20s. But really for myself and for you, it sounds like we've been doing this type of stuff, creating clubs, creating things from nothing for a lot longer than that. Right. Very early on. Even when you were cutting grass or selling lemonade, for me, it was creating the first hip hop class in Delaware with a bunch of people, you know, it's, it happens early on. It's just part of the DNA.
1: That drive to, to want something for yourself. When I also, I think this is just for me speaking, but I never really wanted to work for anybody else. (laughs) Not that I don't get along, but I just think that I don't like having limits put on what I can and cannot do because, you know, you only live once. So like. Why not try to do as many things as you can? And so sometimes working in in a corporate setting, you're kind of just told what you can and can't do. It's just very rigid. You have parameters and you can't overstep your boundaries. And I like to overstep my boundaries. I feel like that's where I, I do well, kind of like stepping into the unknown. And that's just like, sometimes it's like a scary feeling for people, but I like it.
0: Yeah. If I don't have that feeling, I'm bored.
1: I'm bored. Yeah. Like if I'm like, okay, just do one through five. I'm like, okay, one through five's done. But what about like six through a thousand? Like, I want to know what, what other things I, I can do and how I can push myself. So I, I just knew that, you know, working for somebody else, there is always going to be those, those restrictions placed on, on me. And so I was like, you know, let's just, let's go for it. Let's, let's just do something.
0: If it doesn't feel slightly impossible. I don't want to do it. Right. <laughs> if there's, if there's no risk of like complete and utter failure, or if it feels really challenging,
1: or if it feels like homework, if it feels like homework where I have to submit a task and nothing, nothing wrong with that. Some people thrive at that. I just get bored.
0: So tell us about some of the bigger challenges. I know that you pivoted to regenerative. Let's talk about kind of the path.
1: Yeah. So we have definitely faced a lot of challenges. I think probably like 95% of what we've done and dealt with have been challenges and maybe like 5% have been celebratory moments. But it's like those those like 1% moments that keeps you going through like the next 20% of failures. It's just like if you have that that mentality of like there is something good that will come regardless of how much you need to get through. Like, it's always there. Good. The good is always at the end, somewhere, somehow. Yeah, some of the challenges, you know, obviously, we went through the pandemic, as did everybody else. In our heads, failure was never an option. We had definitely reached kind of like these either two or three sort of pinnacle moments where we, as a family, discussed, like, do we shut this down? We had so much invested, and they were pretty emotional moments, I would say. And it's just if you've started a business, if you've done something entrepreneurial, you know, it's always a difficult conversation to have when you're like analyzing, shutting something down because you never want it to die. You never want the dream to die. Like it's a, it's a weird feeling to say like this is just not going to be a thing anymore.
0: Well, Also, it's kind of like what else are you going to do? Yeah. And then
1: that starts kind of occupying space in your head. Like and now what? And that's kind of a crappy feeling to not know. So, yeah, for those of you that have kind of gone through that, it's not fun. But we, we decided that, you know, let's just keep it going. Let's, let's just, this is, this is going to work. You know, let's get through it. It's a pandemic or it's just everyone's going through it. So, yeah, we faced supply chain issues. We faced logistical issues. We faced financial challenges. I mean, everything, everything that everyone was also experiencing. And we were actually forced to put a pause on production because we weren't unable to purchase cheese. So this was pandemic all the large CPG players, Nabisco, Pepsi, etc., actually bought all the cheese reserves. So like cheese ages. And so when the cheese is very young, you can't really manufacture with it very easily, so you have to let it age and rest. And so they had bought all the aged cheese, the 6 month plus cheese. And so we were left with literally nothing on the market to purchase we were scavenging whatever we could find from brokers all over the place some people would say oh i have half a pallet i have a few blocks i have and so we were like mixing and matching all these different cheeses it was a disaster and so we were essentially forced to tell our retail partners that we just can't produce right now it's just not feasible for us also like our co-man people weren't coming into work then, coincidentally, that summer, the largest amusement park in the country opened up, Peter Point, and they basically sucked up all the, the labor in the area and left all the manufacturing facilities without employees. So we went to our retailers and told them, like, we just can't produce right now. It's impossible for us. And they, they sympathized. They were actually also having difficulties producing themselves. So they said, come back in six to 12 months. And when you're ready, let us know and it was at that very moment we were like okay we can shut this down or we can just buckle up and get it back on its feet so we did that and we decided it was a a great opportunity to kind of polish up the brand in some ways that we felt like we weren't able to just because you know things were always constantly moving we never had the time so we we bundled up some things with packaging and we wanted to actually go into something called regenerative agriculture so we had this idea where we said okay we need to protect ourselves from another situation where we can't get cheese anymore. What if we made our own cheese? Like how crazy of an idea would that be? If we made our own cheese and we didn't depend on these cheese brokers for the security of our business. So I was like, we're Chettis. We make the best cheese crackers in the world. So we should use the best cheese. So what? what is the best cheese? And I'm kind of like a big ag head as well. Like I love agriculture. and. I had heard about regenerative agriculture. It's basically back to the roots, back to the basics sort of practices where you don't use fertilizers or pesticides. You have like a multitude of different animals on your land. You take care of like pastures. It's basically as basic as you can get. It's how we used to do it. So I was like, we should use regenerative cheese. Like it's the tastiest cheese on the market. Come to find out there was no one selling regenerative organic cheddar in all of the United States. There was one farm on the West Coast called Alexander Family Farms. They were selling milk. They were the first certified dairy in the country. So I was like, I got to go out. I got to meet this, this family. Like, I got to figure out if there's a way we can make cheese with their milk. So I remember um, I tried getting in hold of Blake, who's the father of the family and kind of manages the, the farm along with the rest of the family. And I think I called them like maybe 20 times. He's just they're busy. They it's hard to get a hold of anyone. But finally I got a hold of Stephanie, his wife. I told her all about what we wanted to do and our vision. And she was totally sold on it. And she was like, You got to meet Blake. I was like, I would love to meet Blake. So meet Blake. He's a super charismatic guy, very loving. He's like, Come out to the farm, just check out what we're all up to. You're gonna love it out here. So I did that. I spent a week with them out in California on the farm, like literally working and going to all the parlors and seeing how their animals grazed out on pasture. And it was awesome. And I told them basically like, we are needing eight truckloads of milk. I found a cheese manufacturer who's willing to take in the milk and produce cheese for us. So we coordinated everything with the whole team there while I was there and made cheese like they sold us milk we made the cheese and we aged it for six months which bought us six months of fundraising It's like a window to fundraise there and i went out and fundraised off of like we're the first cheese cracker on the market to use regenerative organic cheddar there's nobody else out there like us we're already six months ahead of the game and by the time anybody else out on the market even considers using regenerative cheese we're a year and a half ahead of them because of the refresh cycle for grocery stores. So in six months, we'll have cheese, we'll be producing, and we'll be pitching to retailers here in six months. So we're a year and a half to two years out ahead of anybody else out on the market. So we want to fundraise aggressively and we want to position ourselves in the market as the first regenerative organic cheddar cheese cracker to all the retailers across the nation. And that's what we did. We went out, we fundraised, we found incredible partners, We built the team to, you know, our wildest beliefs, beyond our wildest beliefs. And today we're back on our feet and selling cheese crackers.
0: That's great. How much did you guys end up fundraising and any learnings and advice on that process?
1: We ended up fundraising close to $4 million. The reality is you're alone. You're on your journey by yourself. And there's going to be moments when you seek answers, you seek help from others And the truth is like, it's your journey and they're your answers to figure out. And it's hard. It's really tough, but sometimes they're just not there. Like you're going to have to do the homework yourself. You're going to have to network and try to seek as much advice as possible. But ultimately there's going to be moments where you need to make decisions and those decisions fall in your lap. And they're hard, really hard decisions sometimes. So that's the reality. I think we during that process it took us about 9 months to close the deal and take in all this money and now we're learning legal lingo and we're putting together these big legal documents and learning all these complex things that we've never experienced before and it's just yeah it's you're you're going to have to learn on your own like there's just those moments when having a good support system is important family and friends
0: What's something you wish you knew or a skill that you had before starting your business?
1: It's a good question. I think if I had known a little bit more about like money management and cash flow and all that, it would have been pretty effective. I think taking on debt early on is an effective tool if you can utilize it. So our family wrote personal checks, you know, injected it into the business. And I think what's tough about that is that's that's money you never you never see again. It versus like writing a convertible note and it being debt on the company books. That debt is then the responsibility of your other shareholders, just as much as it is your own.
0: So they didn't come in as investors. They just, the family money just was put in the account and there was no convertible note or anything.
1: Exactly. And I think a lot of businesses do it like that. I mean, you need to make an investment into your own business. And so you just, you fund it. As I think most startups do.
0: Right. I agree with you. And I think it's, I don't think it should be done that way. And I don't think people know, right? That's just kind of, you assume you're like, oh, we're just going to put money in the bank account. But you're exactly right. I think that's something people don't realize. And every dollar that goes into that bank account, especially if it's from an investor, whoever it is, family or friend, should be given some sort of safe note, convertible note. So they can benefit from getting something back from that, right? Otherwise, it really just does disappear.
1: Well, when you bring in investors, that's why a convertible note or safe, those are tools that investors, savvy investors like to utilize. It's just a, it's a better form of putting money into a business versus just writing a check. So like, I think that was something that I wish we would have known earlier on was the family could have written, we could have formed the convertible note and we could have invested through that. And then so then that debt now becomes a responsibility of the next investor, and then and so on and so on. And that's just kind of how.
0: And even founders, if you're self-funding your business, I always advise you should definitely make it a safe or convertible note. It's like you're an investor in your own business. The business is separate from you as a person. And I think that's where the lines get blurred when you're starting out so early. Is you think, oh, it's my company. I've got equity in it because I'm a founder. So I'll just put whatever amount of my own money in and I'll get it back because I have equity already. Okay, but that is separate. Like the equity of that you're given is sweat equity, right? To build the business without a salary. When you put money in the bank, you're an investor.
1: Totally, Yep. You're going to have to create shares. You're going to have to put a value to those shares. You're going to have to put a value to your company and then make an investment like that through shares. You buy shares of your own company and that's the debt on the, like, we didn't know any of that. We had zero experience. So yeah, that's just that's money we'll never we'll never see again. But you know, you live and you learn.
0: Hand out some advisor shares. There's an option pool. I think you can make it work.
1: There's so many things. There's so many things that I wish I would have known prior.
0: There's some tricks you can you can fix it.
1: Totally. Yeah, that's one thing. I mean, you're just and you know this. You know, you just you're going to make a lot of mistakes. There's just no other way around it.
0: Who are some of the best investors in the game right now?
1: In terms of CP, yeah
0: early stage consumer who are some of the best investors
1: well i think our partners are have been pretty phenomenal redbud ventures they have been amazing very unique partners very hands on founder fa- founder friendly and all about big dreamers as well like they they bought into our vision of becoming like a it competitor and they are just as big of dreamers that's what they want to do as well, and we've we've been positioning the brand to be exactly that—better for you, tastier cheese. It. I mean, we're really—if you—if you ever buy Chettis, you can find us on Amazon, Sprouts, nationwide, and a lot of mom and pop stores around the country. If you ever do try us, I think you'll find that we're nothing like a cheese. It. We look nothing like a cheese. It. We taste nothing like a cheese. It. The texture is totally different. I always say we're cheese competitors, but I think we're just another better, tastier cheese cracker on shelf. And they've they've bought into that.
0: I think I was telling you earlier, I have a ancestor. He's like my great, 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 great grandfather. Sylvester Stephen Marvin in the 1880s owned the largest conglomerate of bakeries in the US. And he had a company called Marvin's Crackers. I named my son Marvin literally after this guy because he's a, he's a badass. And he <laughs> ended up partnering with two other bakery conglomerates in the 1880s to form the National Biscuit Company, which we know of today as Nabisco.
1: Oh my God. Nabisco. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. He literally formed Nabisco. So there's some cracker in my blood and he's, <laughs> and I'm not kidding.
1: You got to be careful how you phrase that. You got to put some context around it.
0: Yeah, you're right, right. Crackers, Cracker Company. So Marvin's Crackers, I looked it up on eBay and I ended up finding this wooden box that has Marvin Superior Crackers, like the logo on it. And the shape of the cracker was actually a keystone because it was made in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And the keystone is like one of their shapes or something for the state of Pennsylvania. And yeah, that's how they used to sell crackers were in these boxes. They used to be in barrels too. And like mice and rats would eat them at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, this was before packaging existed and they were sold at general stores because grocery stores didn't exist. So it's, it's fascinating. I've done a lot of research on the cracker space because of my ancestry and Marvin's crackers. And I literally bought the wooden box off of eBay. I have it at my home. Did you really? Yeah, of course. I named my kid Marvin, so I have to have the box. It's his name's on it.
1: I'm looking at him right now. Sylve- Sylvester Stephen Marvin. This is...
0: Yeah, Sylvester Stephen Marvin. You are related to him. Yes. His granddaughter was Marion Marvin, which is my great-grandmother, who I knew very well. She lived to 106. Wow. And I had a great relationship with her. She's a wonderful woman. She's incredible. And the whole Marvin family goes, I think, dates back all the way to the Mayflower. So, Yeah. <laughs> The Marvins are, is actually last ma- name, yeah.
1: I'm speechless. This is wild.
0: I've never told that story, I don't think, on the show yet. But I haven't. You're the only cracker company I've had.
1: Let's go. That's wild to me. Yeah, and I'm looking at the box right now. It'd be cool if we sold our crackers in a box like that. I don't know. It might be a little cost prohibitive, but this is, yeah, that's super unique. I had done a little bit of my own research on the Nabisco company, and it's it's interesting how that company formed.
0: Yeah, it formed so long ago, and then it took years for them to kind of come up with a hit product. But really, it was the consolidation of all of these bakeries, and they were getting into the commercialization of baking crackers. And the crackers, I think, they were made for army men, you know, that were like out in war. And it was the only kind of product that they could, wouldn't go bad.
1: I think that's how cheez has got their big, they got their big break, was they they got like a partnership with with the army because, you know, their product lasted. And so, yeah, they started pumping out cheese crackers. It was like an army snack at first.
0: exactly. And that came after the Marvin's crackers, which were cardboard. Like literally, I'm sure they were like cardboard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. But they're probably the most innovative thing next to toast, I guess, after toast.
0: They were. Sylvester Stephen Marvin was actually known as the Edison of manufacturing back in the day.
1: Wow. Oh my God. Well, I'm honored to meet the great, great, great granddaughter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious.
1: Might have to ask for your signature later, your autograph on one of our boxes.
0: I'm the cracker queen. No, I'm just kidding.
1: Yeah. Well, we actually say we're the cracker kings. (laughs) I got the prince of cheese and Tomas got cracker king. So...
0: It's funny. (laughs) Well, speaking of regenerative, we had Alex from Alex Ice Cream on the show, who also does regenerative ice cream. So you guys, I think, work with the same farm. And I love what you all are doing with this regenerative agriculture. I think it's really important. And I hope I see more brands and more companies just stepping up to the plate, more farms stepping up to the plate to, to do this.
1: Absolutely. I do too. And I will say like, It's tough in terms of like how you market this to the consumer, because what is regenerative agriculture? Like there's things about carbon, there's things about soil, there's like all these complex things. But in my mind, what it comes down to is it just tastes better. Like if you have an egg from like a farm where the chicken just literally eats anything it can, little bugs and crickets and this, and it walks around all day. And like that egg is just like no other egg you're ever going to eat. It's just delicious. And it's it's the same with these cows. They eat different plants and weeds and like a whole complex ecosystem of food and the milk they produce is just far better than like any sort of commercial creamery. So I think that's important that the consumer understands it's just that it's it's a far better superior product in terms of quality and taste. So I d- I really do hope that catches on.
0: Have you talked to Outlaw Ventures?
1: I have actually, yeah, they're a really cool group as well. Are they? They're out in. Are they Colorado?
0: They do a lot of investing in regenerative foods.
1: Yeah, I think I had met one of their partners out in Oakland. Yeah, one of the one of the shows. Yeah, they're doing really cool stuff as well. There's definitely a lot of investors out there that are that are catching on, and their ears are perking for sure. Amazing.
0: Well, any final advice before we wrap up here for entrepreneurs that are thinking about taking a leap in entrepreneurship or they're in the trenches right now building their own company? And then also what's next for Chetty's?
1: Advice, so much. But I think just if you're ever feeling lost or kind of down or unsure of what direction you need to be taking, just I always lean on my friends and I listen. And so I just encourage anyone to, Reach out and just talk to somebody, and just see what they have to say, and lean on your on your network and your support system. That was very valuable for me, and it has been still. So yeah, don't be don't be afraid to reach out.
0: Yeah, it takes a tribe. You need to support. Don't do it alone. No one does any of this alone. It's okay to feel down. So it's temporary, and just get the help you need. And so, what's next for Cheddies? What can we see coming coming soon?
1: So we are really gun ho on. Crackers. We want our crackers to be everywhere. We really want to build familiarity around Chetty's crackers. Um, so we're targeting club, C Store, 7-Elevens, grocery stores, basically anywhere Cheese It doesn't live and can't live, we want to kind of fill that gap. So it's a really large market and we just want to do it to the best of our ability as possible. So we're staying hyper focused on crackers. And hyper-focused on quality, making sure that what we're providing to the consumer is just the best cheese cracker we can sell. So down the line, I think we've been exploring like what other cheese snacks we could go into. Since we make our own cheese, we we have the best cheese. But that, that'll come once we've really nailed down cheese crackers. So, yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Francisco, for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate you sharing your story and excited to see your continued success in building Chetis.
1: Thank you. I had a great time here.